my life. Well, I'd like to thank Thomas for filling in for me. It's been a while since I've been up here. I've um, decided to do a series on the book of Acts, so if you'd like to take out your scriptures, we will be in the book of Acts. You know, there have been uh, some wonderful sermons in the history of the church. Over the years, uh, God has spoken with power through his people. Uh, Case in point, uh, it was August 8th, the year 1741 in Enfield, England, during the period what was known as the the Great Awakening in the United States in North North England there, New England. sometime 1730 to 1755, and Jonathan Edwards preached what became known as one of his greatest sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, if one were to summarize the main points of the message, it would go something like this. Nice little three-point message. A corrupt sinner's face of fearful judgment. That would be his first point. Second. Time is short for the unrepentant. God's righteous wrath will come suddenly and unexpectedly. And his third point, it is only God's free choice that extends the day of mercy and provides another opportunity to respond to the call. So a nice three-point message, an effective sermon that that called wavering Puritans who were sliding in their faith. It called them back to faith in Christ uh, so as to avoid the horrors of hell. Uh, He used some graphic imagery uh, in that message. And, you know, he talked about people being like a little insect dangling over the flames of hell. And it's only the mercy and grace of God that, that keeps that spider, that little insect... Uh, from from falling to its eternal doom. Lots of graphic metaphors and illustrations just to describe the precarious state of unbelievers. That God would not hold out His vengeance forever. His mercy does have a time limit. And that there's no day like the present, no time like this moment to repent and trust Christ. We know that uh, that message was very effective in calling unbelievers to repentance. And in, in a sense, it launched in New England uh, that whole period uh, of the Great Awakening. Another sermon which I think is of greater importance in the life of the church is is the very first sermon of the church age, and it happens to be the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. You know, I, I labored over this this week because to take a message that was preached to the church and 3,000 souls came to faith, uh, and the Spirit speaking through Peter, I thought to myself, am I really going to take that on? <laughs> Am I really going to try to tackle re-preaching the greatest sermon probably in the history of the church? And the answer is yes. Uh, So pray for me now uh, that the Spirit would come upon me. Um, But think with me. 
prior to the Spirit's arrival on the day of Pentecost, there were really two people groups in the world, right? Spiritually speaking. We had the Jews and we had Gentiles, right? Jews and Gentiles. After the Spirit's arrival, it's almost like the pieces on the board were rearranged. And now we had Christians, those who had placed faith in Christ, who had been united to Christ by faith, and we had what? The world, right? The rest of the world under the power of Satan. A spiritual battle for sure. And you had Peter basically confronting the world. It is the, it is the church confronting the world. And so I've entitled this series, The Church Confronting the World, um, because I see Thomas has done such a good job in explaining the Christian worldview, and, and we want to be focused on sharing the gospel message with the world around us. But I think we need to orient ourselves as to our role in the battle. We as believers have to confront this unbelieving world with the gospel of Christ. And what I see in Peter's sermon here is really sort of um, the ideal model of the, of the approach that we should take in confronting the world in their unbelief. And so, uh, let me give you a little background on Acts chapter 2 before I delve into it. Um, the first part of Peter's sermon, verses 14 to 21 in chapter 2, they, they really deal with what people were seeing. And so I'm not actually going to, to try to take that on because uh, I would get lost in the sloth of despond. <laughs> um, it, would, it would be an overwhelming topic to take on because we're talking about spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all of that stuff. And I didn't want to go there. Um, I felt more compelled to take the core of Peter's sermon, uh, which starts uh, later on uh, in verse 21. And, and that, that will give us more of the um, framework for how we're supposed to speak to the unbelieving world about Christ. So this is 40 days uh, after, uh, after Christ's resurrection, some 40 days. It's the Feast of Pentecost. They're in Jerusalem. There are people gathered from all over. Uh, Jews from everywhere are in town. People from all over uh, the known world. And they've come back to celebrate this Feast of Pentecost. And then the Spirit um, gets poured out on the apostles. And they, they have these tongues of fire above their head and the wind whooshes and, and all of a sudden the apostles are speaking in other dialects that they had not previously known. And the Spirit is all of a sudden preaching through Peter. So the outpouring of the Spirit on the apostles, this is the birth of the church. An entity that did not exist prior to this. Now the one new man, Jews and Gentiles, placed together uh, in the one new man. And the Spirit 
being poured out. Now, you may say there's no Gentiles here, but later in the text it says 3,000 souls were added to the church. And so what we, what we see is the one new man being born. And then Peter launches into this spirit-filled sermon to call the Jews to repentance for killing their Messiah. Jesus came to you to rescue you from your sin, and you killed him. That's, that's the crux of the message. Uh, but that's not the end of the message. And so it literally, as I said, is one of the most pivotal sermons ever preached. It is literally the church confronting the world for the first time. And as I have opportunity to preach in the months ahead, um, I'm hoping to continue on in this series. But I don't know, I may chicken out. <laughs> But hopefully we can get some, some, we can glean some truths about how the church is supposed to confront the world with the gospel. Again, Thomas doing this worldview series should motivate us, right? Should motivate us to understand what we believe and how to, how to come up against this wall of unbelief. What do we say? What do we do? How do we approach the world? With the gospel. Well, I want you to think back with me. Before I read chapter 2, I'm, I don't normally do this. I usually go right into the text. But I'm going to take you back to the book of John for a moment. Uh, John 16. And uh, you'll remember on the night, think back with me, the night when Jesus was betrayed. He was about to be crucified. It's the night before. And, and Jesus says... Uh, he promises the Holy Spirit to the church. Do you remember that? So John 16 and verse 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And he, that is the Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Drop down to verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay, now you can turn back to the book of Acts in chapter 2. With that framework, what we need to understand is that these three topics that the Spirit was going to uh, fill the church and He was going to convict the world, it says. He was going to comfort the church and He was going to speak through the church. 
and he was going to convict the world in their preaching of these three topics. And what are they again? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? That's our outline for today. That's our outline for today because that's exactly what was realized when Peter started speaking. He spoke of these three topics. And this message in Acts chapter 2 is essentially what Christ promised or prophesied, however you would like to say it. So let's read it together. This is Acts chapter 2, and it's a little bit of a read. And I can't obviously cover everything in here. I'm sweeping the treetops, but you get the idea. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And just one thing to notice as we go through this, when you see all caps like that, that's an Old Testament reference, a direct Old Testament reference. And so notice as we go through this how often Peter uh, recalls the Old Testament and applies it to Christ. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were, about, there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So, that's a heck of a sermon, huh? That's a heck of a sermon. And, and the results are clearly in the hands of God on that. Because it could have gone either way, right? He could have preached that message, and, and like Stephen, they could have stoned him, killed him. But in this instance, his preaching yielded results. And that's purely up to God. Purely up to God. Our call is to preach the truth of the gospel. Our call is to take the scriptures and explain them to people and trust God for the results. And I had to preach this message to myself. I don't consider myself a gifted evangelist. You know, there is only one person in scripture that's it's said to be gifted at evangelism. And that's Philip. Philip, the evangelist, right, as he's called. So I don't consider myself to be gifted at it. I try to be faithful at it. But it helps to know what you're talking about, doesn't it? (laughs) So here we are, church, and there they are, the world. What are we going to say to them? Well, point number one, we should use Scripture to convict people of the guilt of their sin. And don't miss it. We should use Scripture. It's not your opinion versus their opinion. It's Scripture. What does Scripture say? That's what Peter brought up. Men of Israel, listen to these words, he said. And and he, he confronted them directly. Now, when I say we should use Scripture to convict people... Yes, I know it's the Holy Spirit that convicts people. I'm not ignorant in my theology, but how does he do that? You've got to ask yourself, how does the Spirit convict people? Well, it's through the preaching of the cross. God uses means. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, Right? God uses preaching of his word to convict people. And that's what we see in this situation, right? Peter preached this message, and what happened? It says they were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the quick. And and they said, what do we do? Well, let me give you the answer, right? Men of Israel, listen to these words. There's, there's, God uses means. Let me just say this. The Scriptures are objective, they're propositional, and they're truth. And so God uses objective truth to convict people. And what, do I, what do I mean by propositional? When, when you 
when you preach the gospel to people, they're confronted with a decision to make, right? It's a proposition. You believe and you have life. If you don't believe, you face judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but how many times do you talk about the resurrection in your sermon, in your uh, evangelism? Not very often, huh? Probably think people would think you're cuckoo. You're nuts. Nobody comes back from the dead, right? Well, one person did. And that's why it's so important. Now, so we're going to talk about the resurrection uh, in a little bit. But what I want to do is talk about three aspects of their sin that people that uh, Peter talked about here in the text. Okay. First of all, verse 22, uh, let your eyes drop down to verse 22. Peter starts his message with the most important subject, right? Jesus. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. He doesn't say God in the flesh. In fact, as you read the gospel accounts, most of the focus is on Jesus' humanity, not his deity. Honestly, he was a man. He was very much a man, but he was the ultimate spirit-filled man. The apostles lived with him for three years, and not many, most of them knew him while he was growing up. It wasn't like he was this stranger who walked into town. They knew who he was. They knew who his parents were. He grew up in their town. And all of a sudden, he just starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom and doing these miracles. He was a man. He was very much a man. They watched him grow up. He didn't float above the ground, right? He wasn't some apparition. He was a man. He was a fully man and fully God. And, and Peter says, the next line, he was attested by God as the anointed one of the Old Testament. And that's what I want to talk about. Jesus was proven by God in verse 22. He was proven by God. And this is important. And I know you're thinking, what does that have to do with sin? But you'll see in a minute. Jesus was attested by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Now think about it with me. Just a casual thought process through the Gospels. What did Jesus do? I mean, he, he healed the blind. People blind from birth. He healed the sick, lepers, the lame. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He fed thousands with a schoolboy's lunch. He cast out demons. He was transfigured. He raised several people from the dead. And he didn't even have to be in the vicinity to do it. He prophesied his own death, among other things. He rose from the dead himself. He ascended into heaven. Right? In all these things, God attested to his validity of who he was. 
Later on in the book of Acts, when the apostles do a sign and people start worshiping them for it, what do they do? They refuse to worship, right? Jesus, through his whole ministry, when he did signs and people worshiped him, he accepted the worship because he was God in the flesh. And it's, uh, these miracles, they were literally, uh, if, you, if you look at the original language, they're called works of power. Works of power. He, he demonstrated uh, by his power who he was. But the thing I want to get at here is, and I think what Peter's after is, here's this man doing all these amazing things, and he never sinned against anybody. His whole life, he never sinned. He was an innocent man by all accounts. He never made any enemies. He, well, I take that back. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> he made some enemies, but, but he blessed people is what I meant to say. He blessed people his whole life. He healed them. He cared for them. He shepherded them. He blessed them. He was innocent by all accounts. And, and notice what Peter says. They were performed in your midst. You saw them firsthand. You were eyewitnesses. They weren't legends from abroad. I've heard of people raising the dead in India, but nobody can prove it, right? You hear about these stories from all over the world now, but nobody can prove it. Well, in Jesus' case... He did it there, and, and he did it in their midst. And, and it was almost like he was banishing illness and sickness from the land. He was healing everybody that came to him in droves. And Peter says, you yourselves know. I mean, he added that for emphasis. You yourselves know. You know the truth. You saw who he was and what he did. And yet, the second point, Jesus was punished by men. Verse 23, you punished him anyway. This, this innocent man who did all these amazing things, you took him and you handed him over to the Gentiles, the lawless Gentiles to be crucified. He's building his case that they sinned in putting Jesus to death. Right? Jesus was punished. The emphasis and the syntax and the grammar here, I won't get into it too much, but, but it, the literal read of this puts the phrase, you slayed him at the end of the, at the, end of the verse. And the, the front side of it is everything they did by means of putting him to death. In other words, it, it literally reads like this. This one, which is a reference back up to Jesus the Nazarene, this one, by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, which, by the way, is it's a perfect uh, participle. I know you don't know what that means, so I'll explain it. It just says, basically, it's in a state of completion that God had willed this, even though you're guilty of it. That's, that's what he's after here. This one, by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he says, being delivered up by a lawless hand, literally, which is the Gentiles, having crucified, 
This is a compound word, and it means literally uh, nailing or fastening to a cross with nails. This is only use in the New Testament. You slayed. So let me read that for you. This, this one, by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, being delivered up by a lawless hand, having crucified, you slayed. That's how it reads. You sacrificed an innocent man. Now the problem here, by the way, the word slayed is where we get the English word annihilated. It's, it's a very strong word. You annihilated him. And the problem here is that there's an unresolvable tension between the sovereign will of God, right? And the free choices of men. God planned this from eternity past. This was meant to happen, but you're guilty of it. I don't know how to work that out. I don't know how to explain to you the sovereign will of God versus man's choice. I'm not going to try to resolve that tension because I don't think Luke tries to resolve that tension. You know, if you look through, I don't have time to go here and I'd encourage you to look these up later, but if you uh, look through the two books, Luke-Acts, which are written by the same author, they're two volumes of a set, Luke-Acts, they should be read together for the most part, but you see divine necessity uh, it's, it's the word day in the Greek, and it means it must happen by divine necessity. But look at uh, Luke 9.22. Write these down. 17.25, 24.26, and 24.46. And also Acts 17.3. And I'll take you over to the Acts 1 since you're already right there. But Luke likes this tension between the sovereignty of God and the choice of man. Uh, And he leaves it hanging there for us. So Acts 17.3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He had to suffer and rise again from the dead. It had to happen. Why? Because he was the payment for sin. He had to die. By divine necessity. But then human responsibility is right there next to it. God foreordained this, God predetermined this, God knew about this in eternity past and caused it to come about, but you did it. Luke 23, 2, verses 4 through 5, verses 20 to 23, all in Luke 23. Luke 23, 25, and Luke 23, 51. Just just look at that in the Passion Week and see how much human choice there is in the crucifixion of Christ. But all of it fell under the umbrella of God's sovereign will. 
So how do we resolve the tension? We don't. God ordained this to happen, but both Jews and Gentiles were guilty in the crucifixion of Christ. The Jews handed their Messiah over to the world, and the world crucified an innocent man. But somehow it was what God meant to happen all along. So how does this impact your evangelism? Well, here's the thing. You can honestly say to people, you may not have been there personally, but why do you think Jesus went to the cross? Think about it. Why did Jesus go to that cross? He died for your sin. Right? He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He died for our sin. It wasn't just the Jews in that first century that he died for. It was for all sins for all time. You're just as guilty as if you may have swung the hammer yourself. He died for you. We need to bring this to bear in our evangelism. Look at Colossians chapter 2 with me. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. You know, Paul's talking about wrong philosophies of men, but he's going to start by saying, here's what the real gospel is. And he starts in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, wrong worldviews, (laughs) according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And look at this, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's the Gospel. Christ took our sin... And it was nailed to the cross with Him. And when He died, our sin died with Him. And when He was raised, we were raised new with Him. But it didn't end there, right? Peter Peter knows that. He knows that they sinned by killing their Messiah. Wow, I'm almost out of time. You guys got lunch plans? But Jesus prevailed over death, verse 24. 
See, he didn't leave Jesus in the ground. He didn't leave them hanging with this feeling of guilt. He came back and he said, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He prevailed over death. And the importance of that is this, that Jesus took our sins to the grave, but his resurrection vindicated his claim of sinlessness. When he was raised, it proved he had never sinned. It proved he didn't die for his own sins. He died for somebody else's sins. Right? And whose sins did he die for? Ours. Theirs. Whoever would believe in him. And and Peter even says, it was not possible for Jesus to be held in death's power. Why? Because he had never sinned. The wages of sin is what? Death. So Jesus couldn't die because he had never sinned. He couldn't stay dead. Death, Death could not hold him. So after three days, he was raised by God and he took up his life again and it proved proved his claims that he was the Messiah. This guy, Errol Hulse, uh, he, says, he says this, since we're talking about sin here and the guilt of their sin and convicting people of the guilt of their sin, he says this, a ministry which is weak and flabby on the subject of sin is a useless ministry. A preaching ministry that does not result in conviction of sin is useless. If it does not wound, how can it heal? The good news is only for sinners. <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting quote, huh? If you, if you don't prove to somebody that they're guilty of sin, then why would they need a Savior? And, and here's the thing in our time. If people live and say, I never did this. I I live a good life according to the law, basically. I'm a good person. Well, then why did Jesus need to die? Why do you think Jesus need to die if you could have been good enough to earn your own salvation? And the answer is, nobody's that good. Jesus had to die because we're all guilty. You know, I've seen many people pass away now. I've been a hospice chaplain for probably four or five years now. I've seen the wages of death being paid. How do I know that everybody's guilty of sin? Because everybody dies. And their bodies stay dead because of sin. But what does Peter say? Jesus didn't stay dead because He didn't die for His own sin. He died for ours. So we should convict people of the guilt of their sin. Secondly, we should use Scripture to convince people of the righteousness of Christ. Verses 25 to 35, and obviously, since I'm running short on time, I'm going to move quickly. So, strap on your seatbelts. 
The death of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 53. But so was the resurrection of Christ. And as I said, it, it had to be so because it um, vindicated his righteousness. But referring back to the John 16 passage, Jesus said in verse 10 that the Spirit would convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So he was talking about the resurrection and the exaltation. And there's three aspects of the resurrection here that Peter uh, talks about. Uh, first is David hoped in Christ's resurrection back in his time. Verses 25 to 28. David saw the Lord, right? He saw the Lord. He was always in his presence. He's at my right hand, he says, so that I will not be shaken. And, uh, David spoke about the Lord He knew he was a separate person, and he knew that one day he would be at God's right hand. He knew, uh, verse 26, his flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So he's, he's quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, which were written by King David. And it was David's hope that God would not abandon him to the place of the dead. Now, some of your translations may say Sheol, they may say Hades, they may say the grave. The point is, David did not believe that God would basically assign him to the grave and forget about him. Well, the point is that he would not suffer decay in the grave, literally rot. He would not rot in the tomb. And Peter is applying this psalm in a messianic way because he's an apostle and he can do that. (laughs) By the way, one of the toughest hermeneutic issues is the New Testament use of the old. That's a toughie. How were the apostles and the New Testament writers using the Old Testament text? Were they changing its meaning or were they using its meaning in its context and trying to explain how it applied to Christ? It's tough. It's a tough hermeneutical issue. But Peter here is applying this psalm in a messianic way, and he's seeing, it, uh, he's seeing in it a prophecy that, that David wrote it, but he could not ultimately apply it to himself. David knew he wasn't the Messiah. And so when he says holy one, it could apply to King David, but, but Peter says he probably saw this as a reference to the Messiah. In other words, Christ would not be abandoned to the grave. That's the point. Christ would not be abandoned to the grave and he would not suffer rot. So we see his hope in the Messiah's resurrection. And ultimately, if Christ is the first fruits, he sees his own resurrection down the road. He knows God's not going to forget about him. And notice the language here. There's a triplet. He says his heart is glad, his tongue exalted, and, and his flesh is hopeful. Uh, Hebrews like to pile up terminology and use triplets just to emphasize his whole body is resting in the hope that there's going to be a resurrection. And that Messiah would be the first one out of the tomb, and then, and then he would r- r- resurrect these saints of old. 
And the reason he had hope, now there's a quadruplet. Talk about emphasis. Now he says, you will not forsake his soul to Hades. You will not allow him to rot or decay. You may know the path of life and there will be joy in his presence one day. Literally in his face. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. I'm, I'm resting in that hope. Even if I die, I know I'm going to be raised again. And I've done a lot of funerals now, and I've got to tell you, when you're trying to bring hope to somebody, that is the only hope. Right? You're going to be put in a box in the ground. Is that the end? No. Not if you're a believer in Christ. You're going to be raised, and you're going to spend a thousand years in the kingdom with Christ. You're going to be rewarded in glory. You're going to see your Savior face to face. There's a lot of history that happens after you die. At least according to the Scriptures, right? It's not over when you die. So that's why Peter goes on to say uh, that David foresaw Christ's resurrection, verses 29 to 31. And also verse 25. How many of you knew David was a prophet? The Spirit brought this to Peter's attention. I mean, Peter didn't go home and write this sermon over a few weeks. This was the Spirit speaking through him, recalling... Hello. Animated here. Sorry. This was uh, the Spirit speaking through Peter, right? This was not a long preparation and months of study. This was on the spot. Not bad for a fisherman, huh? But he says, uh, he brings up Psalm 132.11. And he says, listen, David was considered a prophet. Verse 30. And the point is, David died and he's still dead. And we all know where his tomb is. We see it all the time. So he can't be the Messiah. And everybody knew it. Everybody was well aware of that truth. But God promised David by way of a covenant in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne in perpetuity. Right? So Peter's rationale under the guidance of the Spirit is this. David must have been speaking about the Messianic descendant. He couldn't have been speaking about himself. And since Christ is the only one to ever have defeated death by virtue of his resurrection, then he must be the Messiah that David foresaw. Jesus is the Messiah, is what he's saying. He was raised from the dead, and because of his resurrection... Because David foresaw his resurrection, and we know he was the Messiah. I've got to move quick because I'm overboard now. The apostles witnessed Christ's resurrection and exaltation, verses 32 to 33. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, he says. And you see, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Again, another explanation for what people are seeing happening here before their very eyes. Uh, 
the Spirit being poured out on the church. But he says, we witnessed it. We saw it. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. And we saw him exalted to the right hand of God. We saw it with our own eyes. And you can go over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and it's, a, it's an account of who saw him first and who saw him last and who saw him in between. 500 people saw Christ resurrected from the dead. It wasn't like it was just one person. He was walking around talking to people. You know, the Gospels themselves are basically eyewitness accounts. All four Gospels have accounts of the resurrection in them. In the Gospel of Luke, you know, the Apostle Paul never wrote a Gospel, so Luke wrote it for him. John Mark, Peter never wrote a Gospel, so Mark wrote it for him. But they're basically the Apostles' accounts, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. His whole life and ministry is death and his resurrection. So, Christ was exalted into heaven and given the promise of the Holy Spirit and he poured the Spirit out on the church just as he predicted he would. Back to John 16. And that's what the whole first half of his sermon here is about. I want you to notice how many verses discuss the resurrection in this passage. Why so much time discussing the resurrection? Why talk about it in our evangelism and gospel preaching? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 17, basically I'll sum it up for you. It says that if the resurrection isn't real, then our faith is in vain. We're fools. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. And so if it's not real, then then this is all pointless. John MacArthur says this about the resurrection. He says, without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. For it has no validation, it has no vindication, it has no affirmation. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was affirming and validating and vindicating the fact that he had indeed borne our sins in his own body on the cross and had satisfied the justice of God with his sin-bearing. Without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. Just another death. I love John MacArthur. He's so eloquent. (laughs) He says things so much better than I ever could. And let me just kind of blow through this last point here just so we, we sum this up here. We should use Scripture to caution people about the judgment to come. I won't spend a lot of time here, but verses 34 and following, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but, but he himself says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. The apostles, the New Testament writers, they loved this passage. 
And it's the same rationale here by King David that Peter sees as applying to Christ. Someone was exalted to, to uh, God's right hand since David did not ascend into heaven. He could not have been speaking of himself. That's the point. So this, again, has to be a reference to the Messiah, the descendant of King David. And what does he say? The Lord said to my Lord, you sit here at my right hand and I'm going to parade in those who rejected you. I'm going to parade in your enemies, those who you have vanquished and conquered, and and they're going to prostrate before you and you're going to rest your feet on their back. It's, it's It's a term of judgment. It's public humiliation because they rejected Christ. And this is referenced all over the New Testament. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15:25, Hebrews 1:13, Hebrews 10:13. There's allusions to it other places. The point is verses 34 to 35, Christ's enemies will be judged. Those who rebel against the Messiah's rule are going to be a footstool for his feet. So, the point of it for our evangelism is this. We need to caution people that if they continue in rebellion to God and His anointed one, and they die, then what? They face certain judgment. It's not going to be pretty. And at some point, we have to talk to them about that. Acts 17.31, we'll get to this sermon later, but the Apostle Paul says, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. He's the man. God proved it by raising Him from the dead, and He is going to judge the world. Remember the response from the people that heard Peter's message. Brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? We don't want to face that. And he said, hey, there's two ways to live. This is my segue into our pamphlet, Bruce. (laughs) There's two ways to live. You can bow the knee now, or you can bow the knee on the other side of eternity. You can... Respond to Christ in repentance and faith and see Him as your Savior and as your friend, or you can face Him as a judge later, which will not be pretty. Despite this condemning message from Peter, there's, there's hope through confession and repentance, right? Right? And, and why baptism? Well, for the, for the Jews, um, sometime take a look at the sequence of baptism in the book of Acts. And for the Jewish population here, they had to baptize themselves out of the sinful, wicked, perverse generation that killed their Messiah. They had to baptize themselves out, make a public declaration, and Peter says, then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Over in Acts 10 with the Gentiles... They receive the Spirit, and then they get baptized. It's a different sequence, and there's a reason for it. But 
But notice, 3,000 souls added to the church that day. Lots of babies. You think twins are a handful. Can you imagine 3,000 baby Christians? What do we do with them? Well, there really are two ways to live, aren't there? Repent and believe and find forgiveness, or rebel against God and Christ and find death and judgment. You know, I know there's a lot we could say when we're evangelizing people. I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm just saying this is a, this is a model for the ages here. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the first sermon of the church. This is the first sermon of the church age. And we really need to sit back and look at it and say, we need to cover these topics of sin, the righteousness of Christ, and the resurrection. Um, and the judgment that awaits unbelievers. We've got to cover these topics or we're not being faithful to the gospel of Christ. This is the apostolic preaching of the cross. And if, if 3,000 souls were saved that day, imagine how many souls could be saved if we were faithful to that message.